I was talking to my mother yesterday and she's got Alzheimer's big time. And um, my sister in the South Island of New Zealand they said, oh, praise the Lord that none of us, her kids are showing signs of it. I didn't say anything back to her on email. <laughs> anyway, it's lovely to see you here and um, to be in the Word. Let's go to the Old Testament and uh, look at the book of Jonah. Because that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks, maybe four or five sermons on the book of Jonah. Because after spending, was it 16 months in 1 Corinthians, I thought it might be refreshing for you all as well as myself uh, to do an Old Testament narrative before returning, God willing, to the second letter to the Corinthians. Let's turn to Jonah. If you don't know where Jonah is, you flick through the Old Testament, you'll come to a book called Ezekiel, then you get to Daniel, then you get to Hosea, then Joel, then Amos, Obadiah, then the next one on the list is Jonah. If you hit Micah, Nahum and Habakkuk, you've gone too far, so go backwards. Okay? You've got Jonah. Okay, we're going to read chapter 1, although we won't be talking all of chapter 1, I'm going to be majoring on the first three verses this morning, but... Just for context and just to keep you alert and awake, I think we need to read the whole chapter anyway. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. Verse 6, so the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8, Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? Talk about the third degree, right? Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. 
Verse 14, then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. What a way to end the first chapter. Mention the name Jonah and what captivates many minds as vivid pictures of a great fish or perhaps Jonah being thrown overboard and taking up his new fishy residence. Sadly, by many, this story is treated as a myth or maybe at its best an allegory. Um, And back in New Zealand, this was often referred to by modern-day fishermen when they had a poor day's fishing. They said, oh, there must have been a Jonah aboard and used him as a jinx kind of description. But Jonah was an actual historical figure, as the scripture records. The book of Second Kings actually refers to him as a prophet who served the Lord in the northern kingdom of Israel in the mid-8th century BC. And of course you will recall that he was also referred to by the Lord Jesus when the Lord was on earth. And the Lord said this in Matthew 12.40 For as to just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The narrative teaches us how Jonah discovered the doctrines and the character of God coming alive in his life experiences. This is what the book of Jonah teaches us. And that is why we should find this book very relative, can I say, and informative, because what we're going to see is how experience and doctrine kind of join hands, and so we can learn from that as we go through this book together. But not only will this book be informative, but I trust it will be challenging, challenging to our own hearts as we see God dealing with a man who was, as I have termed, an unwilling missionary. We will see a man who fears God in the wrong way. Who lacks compassion. A man who is disobedient. A man who knows all about God's sovereignty and mercy. And yet he gets angry with God. He's reluctant. And gets selfishly depressed. Christians today still experience these Jonah syndromes, right? And that is where we can learn much from this little book. But primarily, the story is not about Jonah. That may take you by surprise, but sorry to burst your bubble. It's not primarily about Jonah. It's about God. Jonah, his attitudes, his escapades, they're of secondary importance to the sovereign actions and character of God in this whole story. Secondary importance. In this book, we will see something of God's sovereign mercy towards sinners. We'll see something of God's providential dealings with the man and with men. We'll see how God is also wrathful 
against sin. But before launching into this vivid narrative that we have started this morning, I want to establish some kind of historical context for you so that you can get a better handle on, on, on the Jonah's time and we can kind of bridge the gap from 8th century BC to 2015, okay? You see, Jonah was a prophet. He was a man of God and he lived in a place called Gath Hefer, which was very close to Nazareth. And he ministered to Israel. That is the northern kingdom. You know, the Israels, they divided. And uh, soon after King Solomon's death, and it was Rehoboam in the south of Judah, and then Jeroboam, and uh, the first. But Jonah, years later then, when the kingdom was divided, he ministered to Israel during the years of Jeroboam the second who reigned from about 793 to 758 BC. And during Jonah's prophetic ministry, Israel enjoyed an extended time of peace and prosperity under Jeroboam II's leadership. Okay? You've got to get it right. It's not Jeroboam, the one who was right after the kingdom was divided. It was much later than that. But under Jonah's prophecy there was this extended time of peace and prosperity and to the extent that Israel's borders were extended to almost where they were under David and Solomon's rule, the golden era as we call it. 2 Kings 14 and verse 25 says this, he, that is Jeroboam II, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah according to the word of the Lord the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath So Jonah would have been, no doubt, a prophet that everyone liked. You say, well, why is that? Well, because his message from God was all about land acquisition. It was all about times of relative peace and prosperity. His words of prophecy were, were not like the promises of politicians we get these days where they are soon broken. Jonah's words were promised blessing to Israel from Yahweh, God himself. No warning judgments were recorded that Jonah had to give Israel. His prophecy to Israel was all about peace and prosperity that the Lord would give Israel under Jeroboam II's rule. Wouldn't you love a prophet like that? Who wouldn't love a prophet like that? Mr Turnbull, I imagine, would love someone hanging on his side right now with a prophet like that who spoke from God. But what often happens, you know, when peace and prosperity hit us, as it did to the northern nation of Israel during Jonah's time, often what happens when things go well in the life for God's people is that they forget him. Other things become more important. The same thing happened, by the way, to the southern kingdom of Israel in a much earlier period than this, under the reign of King Rehoboam. Second Chronicles 12, chapter 1 says, And when the kingdom of Rehoboam was established, strong and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. 
And this is exactly what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel in a latter period of wealth and prosperity that Jonah was in and that he promised and prophesied as from the Lord. So two kings reveals that this wealth and prosperity, what it did, it seduced Israel, this northern kingdom of Israel, into a massive slide spiritually and morally as they forgot the Lord and were taken up with material things and and religious experience and dabbling with other gods and immorality of all kinds that they learnt from the pagan nations around them. There was this massive slide in this period of peace and prosperity and great land acquisition. And so what does God do? In his grace and mercy, he gives another couple of prophets who were alive and kind of contemporary with Jonah, but they had a great ministry after Jonah. And they were Amos and Hosea, prophets whom God called not to speak about peace and prosperity, but prophets that were to warn Israel of coming judgment upon them unless they repented and turned to the Lord. But of course you know what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. They didn't heed those prophets that warned. And as a result, God eventually had to discipline Israel, the northern kingdom. Discipline them to such an extent with destruction and captivity from the Syrian superpower who was to the north. It terminated completely the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC under the Syrian king Sargon II. I loved going through the British Museum many years ago, but I can still remember seeing some of these hieroglyphics, some of these stones that they had found, and with inscriptions on it. Not only of Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian rule, but also the Assyrians ruled. Here was Sargon II, with King Jehu bowing before him and paying tribute. But during Jeroboam II's reign, 793 to 758 BC, Israel was basking, as I've said, in this time of peace and prosperity and power. And it was during this time, right? It was during this time that the Lord gave Jonah, this prophet that everyone loved, another mission, a mission with a difference. This was when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. A different mission for Jonah. He's certainly taken out of his comfort box here. Isn't it? Okay, John, Jonah, your easy time is over. It was different because... Primarily this way, God had never ever before this time called a prophet and given direct orders to a prophet to preach God's pending judgment to a pagan city. Never happened before. Why is that? Because God's mission to, to Israel's mission to the Gentiles, it was to be a passive one, but at the same time it was to be a powerful one. You know the old saying, action speaks louder than words? Well, this is what it was to be for Israel. Their mission to the Gentiles was to be passive, but it was to be powerful. It was God's intention through Israel's devotion, their obedience and their trust in Yahweh that this powerful passive witness would draw and attract pagans around them as it did on occasions to individuals 
like Jael and Shagmar and Rahab and Ruth, who were all Gentiles. Very, very few. But Israel failed miserably in this witness mission, if you like to put it. They failed. And this story of Jonah being called as God's agent to preach to the Gentiles, what's it intended to do? It's intended to be a sharp rebuke to the Israel nation as a whole. Because their rejection of God and his mission, it was evident in the negative way that they looked and they valued others outside of their own nation. Otherwise, they were full of themselves. And Jonah represented the attitude and the mission interest at this stage that Israel had. So with that background, we now can come to see that a sovereign God meets a disobedient missionary in verses 1 to 3. As we read the prophets in the scriptures, we will see that they mostly begin with a call from God. And oftentimes how they received that call. Sometimes that call could have come in a vision or a dream or, or they heard God's spoken voice. And the prophet then went and t- took the, uh, the message he'd received either to the nation or to a, the priest or to the king or to the spiritual leaders. Well, here we see Jonah's call and his response in these first three verses and that's all we're going to be looking at this morning. The call was simple, not complicated. Simplicity suits me really well. I'm not a hugely academic person, but this call even comes across to the ordinary, pretty simple, right? Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. As I said, not complicated. Have a look on this map to see the geography of Jonah's attempt at disobeying and running away from God's presence because that's exactly what he did. In geographical terms, he was called to trek around 800 kilometres to the city of Nineveh, which, by the way, was founded by Nimrod, as we have in Genesis chapter 10. This was probably the greatest city of the then known world when it comes to size and magnitude and structure, etc., He was called to go to Syria, right up to Nineveh, around 800k journey. And here he sees the Lord does the same evil and wickedness in the city that God saw when he looked down in Genesis 6 on the mankind of the earth, right? Very similar words, actually. He saw the wickedness of man and the evil was great. Very similar words in Genesis 6. And then God judged the world, as we know, with a flood. Well, here's the same deal. How long did Noah preach? It's about 100 years or something, wasn't it? He preached righteousness. The call went out for the unknown world in, in Noah's day. And here Jonah is told to go and preach to Nineveh. Go out and cry against it. This simply means preach. It has the same idea in the Hebrew as preach or proclaim. 
Now, this is where Jonah gets real nervous. He gets nervous for he understands that this pronouncement of the Lord's judgment upon these, these wicked and hated people can be reversible. We'll look at that a little bit later, but that's what he says in chapter 4, verse 2. In other words, he knows that this message from God that he is supposed to take up or was commanded to take up the Nineveh offers opportunity of God's mercy if these pagans repent. Jonah knows that. Well, Jonah's personal hatred of these wicked Ninevites wins the day. He goes against the norm of the prophet model in that he rejects God's call. He's no way like Isaiah. What did Isaiah say when the Lord calls him? Here am I, send me. He goes against that model. Jonah's response is, as we see in verse 3, is to flee. I'm out of here. Tarshish sounds like a good place to be at the moment. Tarshish being somewhere on the coast of Spain, which was probably about the furthest he could think of in the then known world. It seems without hesitation, Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord in the instructions of the Lord, or he tried to, he tried to. He went down to Joppa, it says, and he found a ship that was going to Tarshish, and he went down into the boat. Lots of downs in this first chapter, actually. Actually, there's, there's a number of ironies in the book of Jonah, and here's the first one that pops up. Jonah goes down to the boat. Well, sorry, he goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down to the, into the ship. And soon we'll see him going down into the sea. And then he goes down into the fish's belly. Almost sounds like the coals ad, doesn't it? Down, down. <laughs> you know, folks, if God is up, then down has got to be real bad, okay? Everything about Jonah... Everything about him and what he did took him further from God, so he thought. But we can ask the question, why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Why why didn't he really want to go? And why did God care so much about the city of Nineveh? And what can we learn about this? As I was thinking about this, I thought, well, if I could illustrate why Jonah refused to go to Nineveh in contemporary terms, it might look something like this. So bear with me. Imagine if God called you to go and warn and preach in the city of Mosul. You should have heard of Mosul. Actually, it's a strategic city, very close to the ancient ruins of Nineveh. But the issue is, Mosul is one of the headquarters and a strategic place for the Islamic State at the moment. How would you respond? But it's worse than that. It's worse than that. Imagine you being a city of a neighbouring country who had, had seen and suffered for years the atrocities that ISIS has inflicted. And you would all read about them. You've probably even seen YouTube flicks of some of the beheadings and 
whatever, the atrocities that they've committed. How would you feel? That's what Nineveh was to Israel. And in, the coast, in, the, in this case, Jonah, as Israel's representative, was commanded to go out and cry against it. Now, the reasons abound, don't they, as to why Jonah had a deep hatred for the Syrians, whose capital city was Nineveh. The Syrian Ninevites, though reasonably calm at this time in Jonah's history, in Jonah's time, reasonably calm, they still had an infamous history. The memory of Syria exacting tribute from Israel under Jehu's reign earlier in about 841 to 814 BC. This still ran chills through their veins. Believe me, it did. They were known for being fierce and cruel and to treat their prisoners of war with shocking deaths like impalement and being skinned alive to just name a few of their torture tactics that they seemed to love to practice. And Israel, as Syria's neighbour, knew all this. No doubt refreshed, and it was, by the odd raid that was slowly increasing to happen from the north. And also, no doubt, by the ancient media. Just like we know about Isaac tactics on prisoners today, Jonah, like all of Israel, learned to have a deep hatred and a loathing for these non-Jewish idolaters who had no respect or value for life at all. They learned that. And to top it all off, this northern race of vicious warmongers, nothing changes, right? Nothing changes. They were a coming. You see, they were on the move. They were beginning to flex their military might. They were like a giant that had been asleep and was now starting to wake up. And what they wanted back was territory that had been taken from them under Jeroboam II. They wanted their territory back. And Israel was one of its prime targets. So when Jonah hears the call to go and evangelize Nineveh, he flees. He flees. But not only that, he, he intentionally flees, as we've seen on the map, in the opposite direction to Nineveh, to Tarshish, as I've said, somewhere on the coast of Spain. It was as far as Jonah could go in his effort to get away from God. As far as he could go. And Jonah seemed to think that he could escape God. He seemed to think that he could escape God's plans and God's gaze by, by running away to some distant place. He seemed to think that. Jonah must have thought that Israel had a premium on God's presence or something. I struggle with this. His, his faulty theology of God being kind of localized, whereby he could, if he just gave himself some kilometers or some sea miles, he could get out of God's presence. He had this faulty theology. It was completely foreign, by the way, to what King David, remember, understood about God. 
You know what King David understood about God and his presence and where he was and where he wasn't? This is what he says in Psalm 139, 7-10. He says it like a statement and a prayer. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David had a right theology of God's presence. In other words, God is omnipresent. No one can escape the all-seeing eye of God. No one. How foolish it was to Jonah to think otherwise. But let's not be too hard on Jonah, okay? Let's pull up here a little bit before we stamp on Jonah too hard. Let's ask ourselves a question. Are we in any way like Jonah? Do we ever flee from God? Now we may not get a call to go to Nineveh or even to Mosul and we may not flee to Tarshish geographically either but we certainly can try and escape his presence in more devious and subtle ways I believe. After all surely the great commission that we all know so well And it's a call upon us, every true born-again believer. The Great Commission is is a call on our lives. It's no less demanding than the call Jonah was given. No less whatsoever. And so if that is the case, surely that can mean any kind of avoidance of obeying the, the Great Commission is fleeing, right? Folks, the people we rub shoulders with every day, our families, people in the workplace, in our leisure hours, have real needs just like the Ninevites. Firstly, they need Christ. They need Christ. There are also believers who need friends. There are believers who need understanding. They need help. They need counsel. need some Christian fellowship. But we can, I know I can, be so insensitive to those needs at times. So what do we do? We flee. We flee. We say things like, I'm too busy. I'm really not equipped for that. Uh, But I've got problems of my own. I, I and more eyes. Or a common one is, I'm not called or gifted for that. Folks, Jonah's commission consisted mainly of two words, go and preach. I wonder where we have heard that before. The Great Commission, which is a church's job description, says exactly the same, as you know. Mark's Gospel says it like this. This is how Mark says it. In Mark 16, verse 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. Matthew adds a few more details to it and he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Spirit and, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
But folks, how often, how often, wherever we go, wherever you are at the moment, how often we remain inactive and strangely silent. Why is that? Is it a fear of man? Fear of ridicule? Complacency? More than likely, some of those things. But whatever it may be, often our response is the same as Jonah's. This is what I'm trying to point out. We flee God's will and call upon our lives. And here's another subtle way that we flee to our Tarshish. Even understanding, like we are all good theologians here, we understand God's omnipresence, right? That he's present everywhere at all times. However, there is a special presence of God wherever his people gather. Do you know that? There is. This is how it was. Remember when God chose to fill the temple with his glory in the ancient day? And when God chose to uniquely and especially presence himself with God's people with the fire by night and the cloud by day, that was all about the presence of God. A special presence where God's people are gathered. But now we have a special indwelling, unique presence individually and collectively in the local church. We have that in 1 Corinthians 6.19. And you know what? When a believer is out of sync with God... They seem always to find excuses to flee from his presence. When we have sin in our lives or or, or maybe uncomfortable about some moral decision we might have made, we get real uncomfortable. Real uncomfortable. Real uncomfortable being with God's people. So what do we do? We give them a mess. That often happens. It often happens. I've seen it happen over the years. And there have times been where I don't want to be with believers because I'm out of sync with God over something. Hence church and meeting with other believers for Bible study and prayer. It becomes too confronting. It becomes too convicting. I remember a man years ago telling me, he said, I... I I come and hear you preach and every time it just weighs so heavy on me, I can't get it off my mind for days and it's terrible and so that's why I'm not coming again anymore. He wasn't prepared to repent and get his life right with God. The preached word often makes them extremely uncomfortable and other believers do. They really hold us too accountable in that situation and so we want none of that. So what do we do? We flee from the presence of God. In other words, when you or I forsake the assembly of the saints, as in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, like Jonah, we are fleeing the presence of God or trying to. So let's not jump on Jonah here. Let's look into our own lives, okay? Yes, Jonah did refuse and resist God. He sure did. But what was was his real reason for his flight? Not because he was afraid of life, of his life. It wasn't because he felt inadequate for the task 
or, or that that mission of going up to that great city of Nineveh was, was an impossible mission. No, no, no. The scripture records none of those things. Being ridiculed, fear, inadequacy may be, well, in our excuse box, but it wasn't in Jonah's. It wasn't in Jonah's. Jonah's excuse was completely outside any box, matter of fact, that I've ever heard before. He refused because he feared success. Imagine that. He refused because he feared success. You see, folks, he understood and believed in God's immeasurable mercy and grace and goodness probably better than what we do. He understood that and he believed that. You see, Jonah, what he did is he weighed up the task before him that he was asked to do by God and he stacked that against the mercy and goodness of God and God came up trumps. It came up, he came up trumps in his book. All that Jonah could see was God going way too far as far as he is concerned with his goodness by including these vicious pagans in his generous mercy and love. He was going way too far for that, with that, Jonah thought. You know, if Jonah had been asked and called to go up and call fire down and brimstone down from heaven and hit Nineveh and obliterate it from the face of the earth, I honestly believe Jonah would have jumped at that call. He would have. Reminds us a bit of the disciples. Remember the disciples who were travelling through Israel, through the Palestine with Jesus, and they came to was it Shechem? That's the, the modern town of Shechem, and um, and they wanted to go and get food, but no one would offer them lodging. And the disciples said, "The sons of thunder says, Lord, shall we call fire and brimstone down from heaven?" The Lord rebuked them, of course. But that was Jonah's situation. Jonah did not want Nineveh to escape God's wrathful judgment. When it came to God's salvation, blessing, promise to all nations through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, remember the covenant blessing? blessing. When it came to God's salvation, blessing through these patriarchs, Jonah, like the whole nation of Israel, did not want any of it to go to Nineveh. They were Gentiles. But underneath, underneath, Jonah knew if God chose, he believed and trusted. He knew that God was sovereign in whatever he wished to do. Underneath, Jonah knew if God chose to bring about salvation blessing to these heathens through his preaching, he would do exactly that. And Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. Jonah confesses to this, by the way, in chapter 4, verse 2, and I'll just read that to you. He confesses to this. I'm not just pulling it from the air. Verse 2, and when he prayed, he said, said, Lord, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. There it is. Jonah was honest, at least, at that occasion. Note how different, note how different this selfish, prejudiced, unloving attitude is to Israel's Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who preached to who? Both Jew and Gentile, right? 
Also, he healed. Do you enjoy? Remember when he went and healed the Canaanite's daughter? Or another occasion, he said to the disciples, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, in John 10:16, referring to Gentiles, those who are outside the covenants of Israel. All of us here who belong to the Lord and trust in him are those other sheep. We're some of those other sheep. And praise the Lord for God's mercy on us when we were outside the covenant of Israel. Which forces me to ask, I hope you are one of the Lord's sheep. There's only one way that that can happen. God has provided a way of salvation and, and we've heard from the communion table this morning about the blood of the Lamb and, and Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God's providing and he died for the sin, your sin and my sin. That doesn't happen automatically. There must be a response from you of faith and obedience of God's call upon your life, just like there was to be in Jonah's. There must be a response of faith and obedience and a turning around from sin and a turning to God and trusting him. It's the only way you'll be one of his sheep. Let us learn that God is sovereign. In other words, he will do what he chooses, when he chooses, how he chooses. And he will save whom he will save. And we are also entrusted with a mission to go and make disciples. Folks, never let us be guilty of running from that. Never let us be guilty. May that be a challenge for us this morning. Now that's the intro. That's the intro. And God willing, next week we will see how a disobedient missionary meets a sovereign God. Trust God will add a blessing to his word this morning. We're going to sing a song now.